every single person, every single person in our church, everyone, is going to walk in this weekend with a small picture mm-hmm. of God's mercy. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a smaller definition of mercy than God has. Yeah. I want to start by asking you guys, when you wrote this song, what was your process? What was going on in your hearts and your minds? I don't remember who threw out the line, but come sit at the table of mercy. I feel like the the theme of um, having a seat at the table or just the table has been a thing that like there's always enough room. You don't need to elbow your way there. And his invitation never runs out. It just kind of made me feel relief. Like the pressure's off. There's no need to perform. There's no need to strive. It's I'm founded by mercy and I can't do anything to earn it. And so I think that encapsulates the whole song. When you think about coming to a table of mercy, there's this thought that, okay, there's mercy for me, so I need to shove all my brokenness and all my stuff like to the side and not think about it. But the reality is like, no, I can bring it with me, but not to hold it over myself. I bring it with me and that's what I lift up to him. And in that moment of worship, I just get so excited because if, if we'll do that, if we'll bring those things in a moment like this, he can take those things and replace them with so many other things. Yeah, I love it. That's been my favorite line from the beginning. Stole it's it. so simple. Yeah, you stole my line. It's so simple, but like the Webster's definition of it is much smaller than God's definition of mercy and his table's way bigger. And we put mercy in a box. And for me this weekend is taking mercy and getting it out of the box. When we lift him up in worship, when we make him the central theme of our experience, he draws us to him even closer. And so that's what I want for this Sunday. I know people are gonna give their lives to Jesus this weekend. Yeah. I know it.
Red Rocks Church, this weekend, I promise you, and I know I say this every weekend, so I'm probably losing credibility, but this weekend, it's going to be, I believe, not just special, but profoundly special. Um, and, and here's what I know about this weekend is that God is not asking you to bring anything to the table, just one thing. God's going to do the heavy lifting. You don't have to strive. You don't have to perform. You don't have to overthink things at any of our campuses this weekend. Just know this. Here's what God asks you to bring to the table, and he's going to prepare everything else for you to be what you need to be, is this. You need to bring faith, expectancy. That's what he works with, right? Without faith, the Bible says, it is impossible to please God. And expectancy is this like uh, name that's synonymous with faith because when we come expectant that God is good like we just sang and that God is for you and that he holds nothing good back from you, all of a sudden he starts to do his best work. And so can we do this at all of our campuses? Can we just uh, give this whole weekend over to the Lord and can we just be, just quiet our hearts and can we just begin to uh, invite the presence? He's already here, the sweet presence of God through his Holy Spirit, but can we recognize it and honor the Holy Spirit? Heavenly Father, we we love you, God, and we just thank you that we get to come here and meet freely without hindrance. 
And God, we thank you for your word that the Bible says does not return back to you void or empty. It always accomplishes the purpose for with which you sent it. I thank you that you're gonna accomplish things at all of our campuses in these next few minutes. God, I pray that you would speak powerfully through me and that you would, God, work powerfully in us. Lord, we give this whole time to you and we ask all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going right to uh, Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 9 through 14, and it goes like this. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, because that's what you do when you're self-righteous. You look down on everyone else. Because the only way to remain self-righteous is to pit yourself against other people that you think aren't doing life as well as you, right? And Jesus, for whatever reason, he had a crowd full of these people. And so it said, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else because God has, has, has no patience. He's got a lot of patience, but he does not have patience for self-righteousness. So Jesus told this parable. He said this, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now let's stop right there. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, in Honduras. I was on a missions trip with a couple of amazing uh, fellas from our church that run an incredible nonprofit. And they brought me down there to show me the work that they were doing in some villages in Honduras. And so we went down for about five days. And on the first day, we flew into a city called Tegucigalpa. I can't pronounce it. Tegucigalpa, beautiful city. And before we went into the villages for several days to do the work we were going to do with the villagers, I had the privilege uh, of preaching at what the Netflix, uh, a documentary on Netflix calls one of the world's most dangerous prisons. Apparently there's this documentary out and uh, it goes around and this guy goes around to the world's most dangerous prisons. One of those prisons is in Honduras and I got to preach there. And so we're driving there and the woman, the missionary, who's been a faithful missionary to this prison for the last almost 20 years, she's talking to me about it. And she said, Chad, there's going to be, when you get there, there's going to be a whole bunch of like guys in army suits, like American looking army suits. And they're going to have fully automatic rifles and there's going to be huge walls and huge gates. And then you're going to give them your passport and you're going to sign your life away. And then they're going to open the gates and that's where the security stops. That's what makes it one of the world's most dangerous prisons is that it is self-governed governed with the prisoners. The guards stay outside of the prison and the minute you go through those doors, it's you and the prisoners. And this tiny little white woman from America who's been there for, for almost four decades, for almost 20 straight years, every week she's walked in there with no security guards and preached the word of God to some of the most hardened criminals on planet earth. And she was telling me this as we were driving from the airport to there and at one point she looks at me, she goes, so Chad, are you like scared? <laughs> I think she liked asking that question to people that come through. And I looked at her and I said, honestly, Mama Tia, I said, I'm not. And I was like, you know, I'm not. I'm not. I, I, maybe God's graced me for this moment. I, like I might get shanked or beat down or whatever. I don't know how this works, you know. I'm, I'm, I spent 10 years in Missouri. All I got is Midwest. That's my only gang sign. <laughs> I can't be walking in like, what up, boy? You know, like no credibility. That's all I got. Midwest, till I die. <laughs> and, and she's telling me some of the stories about some of the guys that I would be preaching the gospel to. And I said, you, can I tell you what I'm extremely scared of? And she's like, what? And I said, I'm so scared to be irrelevant. I said, that's what I'm really nervous about and really scared. And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I'm a white boy, a gringo coming in there with a whole bunch of privilege on my side that they've never experienced on their best day of life. I've got a couple speeding tickets on my rap sheet. Parking tickets, downtown Denver, sorry about that. 
I stole a cassette tape from the Battlefield Mall in Springfield, Missouri of Jodeci when I was 17. Come and talk to me. Ooh, I really want to meet. Right? No, oh, no Jodeci fans? I'm quitting my job. I'm going to a different church. I've, I go, but beyond that, and one of the first guys I talked to after my message, literally, here's what he was in for. Like, what are you in for, right? I asked that. Here's what he was in for. In less than five minutes of gang warfare, in spread fire with an automatic weapon, he murdered 17 people. That's who I'm preaching to. And I'm like, God, what in the world could I possibly, like, like a week before I was planning, what, what could a guy like me possibly say to guys like that with any credibility? And it was a really good exercise because it forced me to test the gospel against itself and how much I really believe in the gospel, right? Because it's kind of easy to preach the gospel in Littleton, Colorado. When you're in one of the world's most dangerous prisons in Honduras, it's another story. But it was like God going, how much do you believe in my gospel? Are you ashamed of my, don't be ashamed of my gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all. You go in there and you preach the gospel. And so God, by his grace, gave me what I thought was a perfect passage of scripture to read. It's the one we're reading right now. But I had to change some language because those guys didn't fully understand. And I was using a translator what it was like to be a Pharisee or a tax collector. And I didn't have time to go into all the uh, historical implications like sometimes we get to hear about all that. So I said, hey, let's not call them Pharisees and let's not call them tax collectors. Let's say uh, uh, a pastor and a prisoner went into temple to pray. Because I said, fellas, because I'm the pastor, right? And, and you guys are a bunch of, of prisoners. And so we're going to kind of see Jesus' heart for the pastor and the prisoner and what it's like to walk into the temple in the presence of God. And so that's where we pick up. It said, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a, a pastor and one was a prisoner. And it says the Pharisee or the pastor stood by himself because being a Pharisee is the loneliest life. Being self-righteous and putting all your hope in your own ability to obey God good enough to be in his right standing, you have to push more and more and more people out of your life to make that work. And that is not the heart of Jesus. So it said, he stood by himself and he prayed. Listen to his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Think if I would have went into the temple. I told those fellas, think if I would come in here and start praying like that in front of you guys. God, thank you that I'm not like these here uh, thugs. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, in their case, murderers, rapists, drug lords, I could have added. And then he goes, or even like this other guy I'm praying next to, this tax collector, who was the scum of the earth in first century AD, right? Because they were Israelites who got hired by Rome, who happened to be at the time oppressing Israel, to go and take money from their own families and their own friends and the only way for them to earn money and they could take as much as they wanted was after they got taxed, then they said Rome wanted more and then you could take off the top as much as you got from them betraying your own people to an oppressive regime. So when they say tax collector, Jesus is trying to show this crowd of people, this is the worst of the worst. And you also got a pastor, a Pharisee, and the pastor's sitting there going, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. So he goes in his prayer from, from, from talking about all the other people that are so much worse than him, because that's what religion does, right? The first thing religion does is it forces you to pit yourself against other people so you can feel better about yourself. It forces us, instead of looking to Jesus for everything, to start looking left and right to make sure that somebody else in life or on our street and our neighborhoods living worse than us so we can have a little false sense of peace. And that's what he does. But then the second thing he does is he starts giving a resume. That's the second thing religion will push us into, right, is resume building before God. This is what the human heart assumes it needs to do before God. We got to make sure we're better than someone else, and we got to start telling God all the wonderful things that we've done. So he goes, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth 
of everything I have. And then the tax collector. I picture the camera going, and here's the tax collector. He's over in the corner. Listen to his posture. We just saw a guy strutting and praying. Now he's over there and it says, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, which was the traditional way to pray in temple, but beat his breast and said, God, and here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the word, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus quits telling the story. And he looks at him, and this is what would have been so shocking, what Jesus says next. He says, and I want us to sit under the weight of this, Red Rocks Church. I don't want this to pass us by too fast. He says, I tell you the truth, this man, he's pointing at the tax collector, picture it. This man, rather than the other, now he's pointing at the pastor, the prisoner, not the pastor, went home what? What everyone on planet earth wants. Justified before God, cue gasps in the crowd. They would have been like, what? The tax collector? Not the Pharisee, not our hero, not our teacher, not our sage, not the guy that knows more and does more and is cooler than all of us, not the Pharisee? He's not justified? You mean the guy that just said, have mercy on me? He's the one justified? And Jesus would have said, yep. And Jesus would have said, and here's why. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, this is what is so deadly about religion is it starts to get the human heart to buy into this lie that it simply falls on good versus evil, right? That's what religion is. Let me, let me talk with you for a minute, okay? Stick with me here. Religion is nothing more than a human obsession with good and evil. Over 90% of the people on planet Earth are involved in some type of world religion, we know the big four, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, but then there's a bunch of other ones, over 90% of the people on planet Earth. Why? We were designed to try and find justification with God. Why? Because we were made in his image. There's something from birth that knows two things. We are deeply depraved. We know it whether we admit it or not. We do a lot of things to hide it. We're deeply off from what was meant to be. We just know that from birth. And then the second thing we know is that there's someone out there that we were, cre we were created, Solomon said, for eternity. And when you put the fact that you know you were created for eternity and you also know you're deeply depraved and probably don't deserve a good eternity, we start doing crazy things called religion. And here's what I mean with religion. Religion is an obsession with good and evil. Think about this. Genesis uh, chapter two, God's talking with Adam and he says, Adam, everything's yours except one tree that you cannot eat from. And what's the tree called? It's the tree called the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Now, I would assume God said, Adam, there's one tree you can't eat from. It's the tree of the knowledge of, and I thought God would have just said evil. Why would he say good, though? Right? Because he created all of it and said it's good. But there's something about good and evil that God never graced the human heart to fully understand. We were never graced to, to know what to do with good and evil. We were just supposed to be in communion with God. That's what we were created for was communion. And now that the apple got eaten, we, made, we were made privy. The minute Adam and Eve took a bite out of that apple of the knowledge of good and evil, we were made privy to some conflict going on in the heavenly realms that God never wanted us to be a part of. You understand that? Between good and evil and between God and the devil, between angels and demons, that was never supposed to be our ball game. And that's why God in his grace said, please don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I have not equipped you or graced you to know what to do with it. And now religion is this human obsession with tell us what's good and tell us what's evil and then we'll try and perform our way towards good and away from evil. And if you think about how foolish that is, we can't even agree what good and evil is on planet earth. One, 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 will, one will call jihad holy. 
Well, a whole other group says that's absolutely fundamentally evil. You understand what I'm saying? But both sides firmly believe that each approach is right. And then you just say, let's just talk Christianity alone. We can't even agree on what's good and evil in Christianity. Like you get to pick what church you want to go to based on what they teach and how they flesh out good and evil. Think how absurd religion is. Like, like, like it's, this, it's this hyper obsession with tell us what's right. People love for pastors to pound the pulpit. You guys, some of you are guilty. You love for us to come up here and say, this is bad and this is good. And if you agree with what we say is bad, you go, he's a great preacher. Praise God, bless him. I love that guy. And if I happen to have a different theological take, man, I'm in trouble. I'm either you're never coming back or I'm getting hounded by you, right? Because we are just have this, we don't know what to do with good and evil. We were never meant to. And so we have notoriously for thousands of years been misappropriating, mishandling how to go about good and evil. And, and what we do is we, we, we create religions. We create systems that, that start to tell us right or wrong, here's how you do it and you better do it good because we're all trying to be justified before God. Let me give you an example. Do you remember the story with Jesus and the rich young ruler that he ran into? This young guy with all kinds of influence and cash. And the rich young ruler had a bit of a strut to him because young rich people all do, right? And uh, you haven't lived long enough to lose that strut. And he looks at Jesus and he says, good teacher, tell me what I must do to be saved. So whenever you read that story, you got to understand the whole context is salvation. The whole story that was written there was about salvation. He says, what must I do to be saved? And this good Jewish kid is waiting for Jesus to start spitting out Torah. And Jesus is going to do that in a minute, but ultimately you'll even see in the story, it's, it's not to prove that he can be saved that way. It's to show him he can't be saved through the Torah. He says, what must I do? And Jesus does something really interesting. It almost sounds like he's getting off topic. He goes, he goes why do you call me good? And I picture the rich young ruler going, I don't know, you're, you heal people and everyone follows you and your teachings are so deep and profound. I've never heard anything like it and you seem to do miracles everywhere you go. You're, you seem good, you seem nice. I've never seen you be mean to anyone or you know, uh, act the way the rest, you're just different. That's why, I call, what, can we move on to how I can be saved? And you know what Jesus is teaching him in that moment? How to be saved. He says this, why do you call me good? Nobody is good except God. And so what Jesus is saying in that moment is, if you're prepared to call me God, then you can call me good. But even a Jewish rabbi, he, Jesus is making this declaration, if you're not prepared to call me God, then I am not good. Remember the prophet Isaiah? I picture Jesus going, you remember our, our great prophet Isaiah? Remember what he said? No one is righteous. No, not one. And it, that's such an important fundamental statement about the human experience that Paul, post-cross in Romans 3, repeats Isaiah. No one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and for all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? And Jesus is trying to say, listen, you, you want me to get into rules and, and what's good and what's evil and your obsession with good and evil, it's gonna get you nowhere. Let me tell you, God is the only one that's good. So unless you can perform like God, then the law is never gonna do it for you. So we can talk Torah but what Jesus ended up doing was giving him so much Torah, he kept going, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it. And then Jesus goes, I'm God, I'll make up another law. Sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. And then he's like, okay, the law is too much. I can't walk in this system of religion anymore. And Jesus is like, good, now I got you where I want you. Now you're weak. Now you're fragile. Now I got you in a place where I can start to take over. My power is made perfect in weakness, the Bible says, right? Jesus had to keep getting him to that place. I, I call this the good grid, and this will be super simple, but stick with me. The, Mama Taya in that prison was by far, in my opinion, the greatest saint in that room. 
She'd been doing unbelievable missionary work for 40 decades with some of the most dangerous men in the world and was not scared at all. That to me is a saint, right? She's in that prison. Now, let's take the guy who murdered 17 people in less than five minutes, okay? We'll call him uh, the most evil person in that prison. Now, in our minds, in our minds, our human earthly thinking, there is such a vast chasm between this lady's life and that guy's life, right? 17 murders, missionary for 40 years, being kind to the murderer. There's such a big difference. In eternally, eternally, though, the gap is tiny between his evil and her good. Like when the gap's this, and all of our energy goes into making decisions about people in these gaps. How stupid is that when there is a gap from good, Mama Taya, all the way to God? This is God's righteousness. This is Mama Taya's righteousness. This is the guy that killed someone else 17 times. That's his righteousness. So we got this tiny gap where we put all of our energy and effort and arguing and fighting and striving into religion. Meanwhile, he says no one's good but God and God is way over here. Why wouldn't we spend all our time in this gap worrying about it when we spend, and this is what the enemy wants to do. He wants us to get all our minds fixated on Chad's the pastor in the prison and they're the thugs and the prisoners. God must love Chad so much more than them. And I got to look at those prisoners and I got to say no one is good. Me, you, no one. Mama Taya, by God's standards, isn't good enough. Our only hope, the only battle cry for the kingdom of God is exactly what this prisoner said. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And we're about to have communion. We're about to come to the table of what I call mercy. Because, listen to me, I, I went out to eat at restaurant week a couple weeks ago with my wife, and we had one of those restaurant deals where you get the, the, the appetizer and then you share the course and then you, you get a dessert, right? How many went to restaurant week? We, yeah, everyone was there when I was there. It was a nightmare. I'll never do it again. <laughs> Food was amazing though. But I, I'm no culinary artist, not even close. I don't, I make toast. That's all I make. But I do know this, the, a basic fundamental about culinary arts is that everything, if you really know your job well as a chef, should complement everything else. Meaning we don't just randomly give you an appetizer. We don't just randomly then give you an entree. And then ran if you're in a good place, and we, we splurged that night because we hadn't been on a date in a while, so we went to a really nice place. And when we went there, it's almost like they sometimes tell you what you should have, Right? It's because they say, hey, if you have this, we want to give you this or offer you this, and then we're going to give you this kind of dessert because your palate keeps getting set up to be complimented by the next thing. And I say that to say this. There was a three-course meal, and I believe in the kingdom of God, the table of God that we're about to come to in communion. There is a three-course meal, and each one complements the other one. And I would start here with the appetizer. What I love, if it was me, it was Bloomin' Onion. Love it. Call me what you want. I love it. Don't apologize. So bad for you, for your body, for your soul. It's amazing. So, okay. So this table spread out and I would say this, the appetizer in the kingdom of God, if you really want to come eat at the table of mercy, the appetizer is this. And that's all God cooks and it's all he's, it's kindness. Romans chapter two tells us, right? It's the kindness of our Lord that leads us to what? Repentance. The, the perfect compliment to the main course we're all gonna eat at the table of mercy. The main compliment to mercy is kindness. Kindness is God's setup to get people to a place of mercy. I don't know because Jesus made up this story, but at some point for a tax collector to feel worthy enough to go into a temple and pray when he was so ceremonially unclean, someone had to tell him that God was way bigger in mercy than the rest of the people were telling him. 
Remember what I said in that video? We all come into this place with a small view of mercy. And that my hope this weekend that God would, would break out our view of mercy and destroy our view of mercy, make it so much bigger than we thought. Well, the setup at the table of God to eat the main course, which is always mercy, is his kindness because it's his kindness that really leads the human heart to repentance. It's his kindness. That, that, that Pharisee was giving resumes and talking down on everything. He wasn't being kind at all. He didn't understand the heart of God, but this thug, this tax collector did. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God says, I'm gonna serve you mercy for the main course, but you need to see my kindness first because it's gonna set your divine palate up for the main course, which is mercy. We sang it all last weekend over and over and over. You remember mercy triumphs over judgment? That's just James chapter two, verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In the kingdom of God, mercy is the main course and there is no plan B. And then the last thing is when you've received from the kindness of God, you've received the mercy of God, then it's dessert time, right? And that's the good part. And the dessert in the kingdom of God is Jesus says, now my peace I give you. My peace I leave you. Go in peace right? Go, you're justified. That's what it is in the kingdom of God, at the table of God. Every time my friends, uh, we have friends over, here's what happens, and you guys will relate to this. You'll understand this. Every time we, we my wife loves to, my wife's Southern, okay? She loves to host people. And so when we host people, I'll call them, we'll ask friends, people on staff, whoever, we'll call them to come over. And, and you guys know this because the same thing happens with you. When, when they say yes, what's the next thing they're going to say? This girl's <laughs> They say, can we bring anything? Doesn't that seem nice? That a nice, human, friendly response? Hey, what can we bring? Can we bring some drinks? Can we bring some desserts? Can we bring an appetizer? What can we bring? And every time I say the same thing, you bring two things. Your taste buds, because my wife can cook, and yourselves. That's all we want from you. That's all we want from you. My wife, a lot of you know this if you're visiting with us, my wife is a, a refugee, formerly, from another country, uh, Alabama <laughs> graciously took her in in Colorado. She's, so I married a foreigner and <laughs> hate on Alabama or the South all you want. They flat out corner the market on food in my opinion and my wife can cook and she learned it from her grandma. We call her Grandma B. Rest in peace, Grandma B. She died almost two years ago and she's like a second mom. In fact, she's so special to my wife and band, you guys can go ahead and come out. She's so special to my wife that we named our daughter after her. So special. And I got several years. I got over a decade with her before she passed away. And I got to see how special she was. And she loved Jesus. And she loved people. And she loved cigarettes. <laughs> when you go to Grandma B's house, you're getting two things at the highest level, Marlboro and Mercy. Like, and she's felt so guilty, and especially when, like, when I started coming into the picture, she was always trying to hide it, and she wouldn't smoke. She got her carpets clean the first time I came over to meet her, because she, you know, I'm, I'm a, and then I walked in, and she saw me, and she's like, oh, I'm fine. I'll smoke around you. <laughs> Ripped jeans and weird outfits. I'll, yeah, okay. It's like, I thought you were like my pastor, right? And, and, and I loved Grandma B so much, but here's what's amazing about Grandma B's house is that no one could even remotely come close to cooking like her. So it was an absurdity for you to think you were gonna bring something to her house to like help the meal out. But all Grandma B wanted, she's like, I am such, she would never say this, but she thought it, she knew. She's like, I am such a better cook than anyone in this state. 
so don't you dare offend me by bringing something into this house that you think you can help the meal with. All Grandma B wanted was everyone at her house because she had so much love to give and she had so much mercy to give and it was such a joy for her to serve people food. It was like the spirit, this Holy Spirit gift we've been given of hospitality. Like God is profoundly hospitable, you understand that? So much so that it's one of the gifts listed in the Holy Spirit. He is so profoundly hospitable and this was Grandma B. And Rachel's family is like my family and like your family. Let's get real for a minute, jacked up. (laughs) Problems. And my wife has six brothers and sisters. So there's always drama going on. On their best year, there's drama going on, right? And everyone always wanted to be at Grandma B's house because the minute you walked in there, you were gonna get two things. You were gonna get a meal full of mercy and you were gonna get unconditional love. And all the drama of life was gonna be put on pause in that house. And she just had this specialty, this disarming gift of bringing people in. And, and it was like everything could go by the wayside. And all she wanted was you to be there. And everyone went there. And I started to realize over time, it's a refuge. And I wanna read a verse that we're gonna end on and then we're gonna sing uh, uh, about it and we're gonna worship and take communion. It's Psalms 34, eight. It's a famous verse, you've all heard it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. I'm like, God's house is like Grandma B's house. I just want you, God would say, I just want you to bring your taste buds because I've cooked up some mercy and there's nothing you can bring to the table that is remotely good enough to do justice to what I've cooked up. So all I need you to bring is your taste buds for mercy and this is gonna be a refuge and bring yourself. That's it. And that's what we do in communion. That's what it's about. We think it's, it's this, this beautiful ceremony to make sure Jesus gets enough praise to feel good about being Jesus. Can I let you in on something? Jesus is completely good with who he is without one ounce of, if we don't praise him, the rocks will. He's, you, he, praise can't be contained by our feelings or what we choose to do. You understand he's gonna get praise no matter what. So, so understand when I say this, communion, when we're about to take it, isn't about you. And it's not about you making sure Jesus feels good enough about how you feel about him. Jesus knew that we were so deeply forgetful people that the heart is just so naturally prone to get off what matters most. And what matters most for you to flourish, if you wanna flourish in life, is that you constantly come back to the table of mercy and eat and eat and eat and eat, not from your good works and not from how much better you are than someone else on the other row or down the street from where you live or at your job, but that you would continually come back and remind yourself that if not for the mercy of God, I would be nothing. Like communion is a refuge where you get to come. It says, blessed are those that take refuge in Jesus. Jesus wanted to institute this thing that that he said would be sacred to, to bring us back to the thing that matters most. He wants us to know that he loves you so much that he got his perfect body destroyed for you. You understand? He doesn't need you to praise him. He, he instituted communion so you would stop in this chaotic world we live in and go, wait a minute, the creator of everything came to earth and got destroyed when he lived perfectly because I didn't live perfectly so that he could take my place, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You understand that? And so that we would take that wine and go, wait a minute, you mean because of the blood that was innocent that he shed on our behalf in our place, I get to be called a son and a daughter now? I get to be sealed in the Holy Spirit? guaranteeing my inheritance with him. I can rest in that. And yeah, and, and all Jesus is saying is, he's like Grandma B, just, 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 just come ready to eat mercy. 
come ready to partake of, uh, at the table of mercy and let me be a refuge for you because mercy is the only thing that will ever drive a relationship with Jesus Christ, period. It is the only thing. So if everyone at all of our campuses would stand, I have to ask the single most important question that we will ever ask in this church. With every head bowed and every eye closed, at all of our campuses, if you came to any one of our campuses and you say, you know what, Chad, I came in here broken and hurt, wounded, angry, depressed, grieving deeply, questioning the goodness of God, questioning the reality of God. I just wanna do this right now. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit is doing him. I know he's doing his work. If you're in here and you say, Chad, I've never committed my life to Jesus Christ. I have never been saved by the mercy of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says this. I want you to know what you're about to respond to. The Bible says every one of us in this room and at all of our campuses has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You need to understand that. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means you're in good company right now. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to feel condemned. You don't have to feel bad. Listen to me, men and women at God Behind Bars. Everyone, prisoner or pastor, needs the same good God. And you can be justified, it goes on to say, freely. It is a gift. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can be justified freely by the grace and the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. It says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you will confess with your mouth, we're going to do that in a sec. And if you will believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, conquering death, and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. If you are ready to believe that by faith, if you are ready to call on God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, would you right now at all campuses raise your hand? and keep them up proudly. This is the best moment of your life. We are celebrating with you, not judging you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep them up, loud and proud at all of our campuses. All of them. Come on, Belgium, keep them up. Don't be ashamed. I know that's a smaller room. Do not be ashamed, Belgium. Brussels, this is the best thing you're gonna do. Someone there at Brussels, put your hand up right now. Ask for Jesus, cry out for mercy. Jesus, we thank you for this moment and we pray as we begin to worship you and we begin to commune with you that you would do something so special in all of our campuses. Holy Spirit, I pray that people would sense the sweet spirit of mercy and Holy Spirit, I pray that these next few minutes would be so special and so pleasing and Holy Spirit, I ask in your name that as we begin to sing to you and as we begin to remember Jesus and his sacrifice that you would minister to people that this place would be a refuge for people to see your goodness, God. We thank you for everyone who made a decision for Jesus Christ. God, we give you all the glory and all the honor. Thank you that heaven is getting more crowded right now as we speak. God, we're gonna worship you with all of our hearts for your glory. And in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. At all of our campuses, let's worship.